Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Ahern, and in today's episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Stephen Lin, who is the Service Chief of Family Medicine for Stanford Healthcare and the Founder and Executive Director for the Stanford Healthcare AI Applied Research Team. Dr. Lin is also a self-taught photographer, dad, and piano player. He wears many hats and exemplifies all the traits of an experienced family medicine physician. He is flexible, driven, and motivated to lead and serve others. In today's episode, you'll get to hear about bringing AI research from code to bedside. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Mammal Podcast. Thank you and enjoy the show. Dr. Lin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to have you on the podcast. You have a background in family medicine, but so much more than that going on. To get started, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about yourself in general? Oh, sure. Well, um, I was born in Taiwan, and I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Um, came to the United States for college and then has uh, been here ever since. So I, I was in North Carolina at Duke University for, for college, where I was really interested in health disparities and community work. Um, and then I continued to pursue that in medical school at Stanford, where I decided to specialize in family medicine. In my spare time, I really enjoy um, playing music and uh, teaching my five-year-old daughter how to play piano. She's really enjoying that right now. Um, and I also really like photography, really taking photos of my kids. Um, I have a uh, seven-month-old as well, and he's in a really cute stage right now. So those are my interests. That's fantastic. So it sounds like you're a young family. I can imagine that's really busy. It is, yeah. And, and work is really busy, but it's all um, really rewarding. I have to ask, I lived with a Duke alumni. Are you a big Duke basketball fan? <laughs> I don't think they admit you if you're not. <laughs> and if you're secretly not, you learn to love it at the end. So I, I, I was uh, really... Uh, honored and uh, really privileged to be a part of both Duke and Stanford, which are big sports schools and uh, basketball schools, especially. So I, I really got to enjoy that and, and still follow uh, Duke basketball. And uh, of course, Coach K retired recently, so it was very sad, but uh, uh, I'm glad that uh, they went far in the uh, tournament. Yeah, absolutely. I And I'll follow that up with another question. Did you ever, I heard from people that the camping out prior to the big Duke game is is a paramount experience of uh, college at Duke. Did you ever do that? It is a serious, serious thing. Um, but I uh, was never brave enough to do that. Okay. Hats off to those who who braved it. Serious hats off to those folks. I don't think I'm. I'm not really much of a basketball person myself. Being from the Midwest, hockey is more my speed. But uh, I can imagine how cold it would be to camp out for hockey or for basketball. Really. <laughs> But so that's I think you're right. So that interest in photography, I think, is so neat. Does that, you know, where did that interest kind of crop up? Oh, that's really funny because um, I remember when I was young, um, my father used to take tons of photos of, of me and my brother growing up, and we used to hate it. And uh, my dad would tell me, "Just you wait and see. When you become a father, you will suddenly one day develop an interest in photography." And I didn't believe him until I had kids. And that's exactly what happened. As soon as my daughter was born, I became really interested in photography. 
Uh, and uh, thank God for portrait mode because that's like uh, really makes it seem like I'm better than I really am. Yeah. So is, is the iPhone your camera of choice for your photography? It is. Okay, nice. I notice our listeners obviously can't see this, but behind you, it looks like there's a very beautiful collage of portraits. Are, are those your kids back there? Uh, thank you for noticing that. Yes, my, my wife made this for me um, a couple of Christmases ago as, as a Christmas present. And it's just photos of our family together. So I, I have a few of these hanging in my offices. That's beautiful. I, I love kind of the, the centeredness around family because that's part of what our conversation is today is about family medicine, primary care. Um, and I'd be really curious to hear a little bit more about your path into primary care. Yeah, um, as I mentioned, I think when I was in college, I was really interested in health equity and health disparities and um, decided to just continue to pursue that in, in medical school. And uh, I, I the medical school with an open mind, but really um, wanted to get back to doing work in the community and working on issues related to population health. And so um, I decided that the best way to do that was through primary care and specifically through family medicine. That's very cool. And you mentioned you're from Taiwan originally. Yes, born in Taiwan. That's very cool. Do you feel like that experience has given you a really unique perspective at all on family medicine in the United States? You know, that's a really interesting question. It's such a different healthcare system in Taiwan. And I was raised in Canada, which of course has a very, very different uh, single payer healthcare system compared to the United States. So I think um, both having that affiliation with Taiwan and Canada gives me a, a certain perspective into healthcare in the US, which unfortunately, as you well know, is very, very fractured, very expensive, and not particularly high quality. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I, I'm was telling Dr. Lin before we started taping this episode, you know, I'm just getting off a of family medicine rotation and I was working at a community clinic and noticed a lot of, you know, problems with insurance, prior authorizations, people really struggling to get the care that they need. So yeah, in the United States, we are facing a huge healthcare crisis. Do you see Dr. Lin there being any specific major problems that are um, facing primary care physicians today? We can dedicate, I think, <laughs> an entire episode to all of the problems with uh, with our healthcare system. Uh, but if I if I have to summarize it very briefly, um, it's simply that we don't have enough primary care physicians to handle the care that uh, our entire population needs, and there's very little incentive for anybody to go into family medicine because it is the most difficult job in medicine. And many would say um, a job that also garners the least amount of respect. <laughs> and so uh, a lot of the policies that we have in place, a lot of the funding structures that we have in place, and a lot of the logistical and practice barriers uh, uh, against family medicine, there are, they are significant. So unless we solve some of those very deep systemic problems, I'm afraid we're always going to have a, a primary care problem. Yeah. Absolutely. And as, as the need for primary care physicians is increasing, we're kind of compensating by including other members of care teams at the clinic I was at. It was mostly physician's assistants and nurse practitioners that were doing the primary care for patients. I don't know if your experience is similar out in California. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and in many systems, uh, your only access to primary care is through a physician assistant or, or nurse practitioner colleague. I will say that uh, advanced practice practitioners like PAs and MNPs are incredibly valuable members of the team, and there's not enough of them, and there's not enough of uh, primary care physicians and family physicians in general. I think, really, I'm hoping for an all-hands-on-deck approach. We can't produce enough primary care physicians and clinicians fast enough to meet our demands. And again, it's the logistical barrier. If you're a medical student uh, thinking about what specialty you want to specialize in and you're told hey you know there's a huge need in primary care oh by the way it's the hardest uh, uh, job in medicine and you get the least amount of respect and the least amount of pay you'll be like so why do i want to do this <laughs> and so um, it, it's very difficult but i really hope that um, students can uh, dig a little bit deeper and, and really see the really rewarding aspects of first contact comprehensive care that is primary care because it's very, very rewarding. And despite the challenges, you know, if I had to pick all over again, I, I, would, I would still choose family medicine. That's fantastic. I think it's something, you know, coming off of family medicine being my first rotation in medical school, coming off seeing kind of, I had a few patients that were great examples of continuity of care. I got to see um, kids for well child checks and then got to see siblings of those same kids later on. I just, I really loved that, you know, it's totally holistic and totally centered around the family. So that's why I think it's kind of cool that you're talking about like your kids and like your community because that's totally so unique to family medicine more so than any other medical specialty. It's fantastic. I, I think, I think you're absolutely right. There's no specialty where you can see a baby that's literally, you know, fresh out of the womb, a couple of days uh, discharge from the hospital, their uh, mom, dad, siblings, grandparents, you know, all at the same time. It's just no other specialty like it. it it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And, and truly no other specialty like it. And I think that also applies to how AI is being implemented in family medicine. So what I mean by this is, at the Medicine Machine Learning Podcast, we've interviewed a lot of folks in, you know, fields like radiology, dermatology, more specialized areas of medicine where the, the implication of AI is more apparent, a little bit more obvious to providers and a little bit more obvious to researchers. And when we talk about family medicine and artificial intelligence, you know, people might not know how those two things go together. So in your opinion, how do those two things fit nicely and how can they be used to improve the patient experience? That's a big question. Yeah, but I'm so glad you brought it up because I'm really concerned, Madeline, that um, when it comes to healthcare AI, we are ignoring the largest care delivery platform in the U.S., which is primary care, you know, responsible for 52% of all care delivery, more than all other specialties combined, yet not enough research and development is being done on technologies like AI to support primary care delivery. If you take a look at, say, for example, um, the research that is being done right now in healthcare AI, only 14% of healthcare AI publications includes at least one primary care author. If you take a look at the FDA-approved uh, AI devices and algorithms, 
that are approved right now, only 3% are intended for primary care. You know, 50% is in radiology, 20% in cardiology, everything else, uh, all other specialties, but 3% for primary care. And then if you look at research funding writ large, only 1% of federal funding goes to primary care. So then if you take a look at primary care, which again, like I said, is 52% of all care delivery, it is very obvious and clear that we are ignoring this aspect of our very important primary care system. And without more attention and investment to primary care, we're not going to be able to truly realize the potential of healthcare AI for the broadest population of patients. Absolutely, and I think you kind of touch on a few things, and one being the patient load for the average family physician is astronomically high and not decreasing anytime soon. More people in the United States are needing care. More people are needing advanced care. We see diabetes, hypertension. These things are just increasing. Do you think AI has the ability to reduce some of the workload on physicians? And where do you think those areas of potential AI intervention are in the clinic? Yeah, I do think that there's vast potential for AI to improve the the delivery and quality aspects of care, in addition to some of the things that I think we're maybe a little bit too focused on right now. Like when you're looking at um, uh, popular news media uh, stories about healthcare AI, it's often about diagnosis, clinical diagnostics, especially in the subspecialty arena. But I think that we need a lot more attention on not just clinical diagnosis, but also really related to the quality and delivery aspects of care. The huge portion of a care is not uh, a diagnostic dilemma that we have to solve, but it's delivering the care that we know works for the people who And that aspect of things can absolutely be uh, augmented with artificial intelligence. You also mentioned sort of the burdens on primary care in terms of uh, just how many patients we have to see and also the administrative and clerical burdens. Uh, you know, there's a lot of studies out there showing that primary care clinicians are at the highest risk for burnout because of all of these administrative and clerical burdens, among other things. And there is huge potential for AI to help reduce some of those administrative and clerical burdens. For example, clinical documentation. You know, for every hour that we spend in front of patients actually providing care, primary care physicians spend another two hours behind the computer screen doing things like charting or prior authorizations and paperwork. These are clerical things that can be easily automated to be handled by an artificial intelligence. And it's a much less risky application of AI than say, for example, clinical diagnostics. And so there's a lot of low hanging fruit that we can tackle when it comes to uh, developing technologies powered by AI for PCPs. Absolutely. You're reminding me of one of the providers that was in my clinic over this past month that I was on family medicine. Everyone referred to him as the epic expert. Uh, say that fast. <laughs> the epic expert. And I mean, this guy knew he had gone out to the epic headquarters. He had taken a bunch of classes. He had spent significant time and financial investment in just getting good at charting. That's not even like you know, you go to, we go to medical school for all these years, you learn how to work with patients, you learn how to diagnose patients, how to create a treatment plan, all of that stuff. 
But he was telling me, he's like, yep, most of my day is charting. And so I've invested a lot of time and money in getting really good at working with Epic, which is the system that they used in that clinic. And I just thought that that was really interesting and kind of a on display of what really goes on in the clinic and what is your time spent doing? So I yeah, think isn't that sad? I mean, um, think about your own medical journey right now. That that's, that's not the purpose of, of being a doctor. Right. The purpose of being a doctor is to heal, to be with patients, to be by their side, to look them in the eyes, to hold their hands through their difficult challenges with their health. It is not with insurance companies charting during your pajama time when your family, when you really should be spending time with your family. Um, that is not the point of medicine. And I think there's potential for AI to help alleviate some of that. And I know, you know, as I was speaking with family medicine physicians, they were saying, you know, part of part of what we we look for and what family medicine physicians are are people that like to spend time with patients. And so it's funny that we say, okay, come come into family medicine if you love to spend time with patients, if you love continuity of care, and then we sit you down and have you charting two thirds out of your day. It's just the disconnect is unbelievable almost. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. So that, that gives me a good segue into your work and, you know, you're the founder executive director of the Stanford Healthcare AI Applied Research Team. And your guys' kind of whole situation is, I like your team's motto, from code to bedside. You know, we say about research from bench to bedside. So I think that's, I think that's a cool little, um, a little quip there. But why don't you tell us a little bit more about what your team does? Yeah, exactly. The, the code to bedside thing is deliberate, and I'm, I'm so glad you basically figured out what we were trying to say, which is the, the bench to bedside equivalent of the AI age. Um, the, the, the reason I started this team is because when you take a look at the field of healthcare AI as it exists today, um, you see that there are increasingly sophisticated models that are being developed very, very powerful predictive analytics and tools that if you take a look at the studies perform incredibly well, um, but very little of that, you know, a tiny fraction of that is actually getting to the bedside to benefit, you know, even a single patient or provider. More than 90% of the AI algorithms that are out there are never making it into production. And why is that? I think it's because we have a translational gap or an implementation gap. A lot of the technologies that are being developed are really just dying in publications and never being applied because the development of the technologies was done separately and completely removed from considering how it would actually integrate into the daily work of clinicians and healthcare. And so when it comes time to apply the same technologies, there's a huge barrier. You can't just develop something and then know and think that it's going to work, right? Healthcare systems are extraordinarily complex. Workflows are extraordinarily complex and varied across not only institutions, but you know, between different specialties within the same institution, even between uh, clinics within the same specialty and department, they're very, very different because they're very, very sensitive to local conditions, local needs, staffing, patient population. There's so many different factors that go into how something will and 
And without that understanding of the complexities of implementation science and using implementation science methodologies and strategies to think about healthcare AI, I'm afraid that most of what we're developing right now in the basic science sphere of healthcare AI are never going to make it to the vaccine. And so that's why we created the, the heart team at Stanford, is to just focus on that implementation piece. So we are really unique in terms of our, our staffing. We actually don't have a single computer scientist or a data scientist on our team at all. Oh. We are completely made out of a, a private care clinician, quality improvement specialist, workflow specialist. Um, our methods are not in the traditional research field. It's more, uh, much more in the quality improvement and implementation science research field. And so we use things like um, human factors engineering or design thinking, a lot of mixed methods, qualitative research into figuring out how does a technology work in particular settings, and then how do you scale that? That's fantastic. And I, I see on your website, you guys have lots of cool partners, Amazon, American Academy of Family Physicians, you know, American Board of Artificial Intelligence and Medicine. So it's clear that your ideas are getting a lot of traction and it's clear that these things are going from just ideas to actual things that can be implemented for patients, which I think is fantastic. And I think kind of addresses a, a large concern in medicine, which is that we, we as a country and as academic institutions invest so much money, resources in research that sometimes doesn't even end up making a patient's life better. So I think to make the patient's life better, to improve the workflow of clinicians, I think that this is a really noble goal. And I'd be curious, have you guys had any projects that you've been able to take from the code or from the bench to the bedside yet? Yeah, I can, I can give you an example. Uh, so one of, our, <clears throat> one of our collaborators at Stanford, uh, uh, Dr. Nigam Shah, he's uh, an amazing data scientist and his team in uh, bioinformatics created an algorithm that was very accurate at predicting when a patient is admitted to the hospital, their chances of dying in the next 12 months. So essentially it was a mortality prediction. And uh, this was very, very accurate, but they had this algorithm and they didn't really know how to implement it. And so, uh, and it sat on the shelf for I think a couple of years before uh, we were able to get in touch with them. And we worked together, our two teams, and uh, in addition to other teams at Stanford, including our paleo colleagues, to then think up and design a workflow that could actually integrate this algorithm into care. So we decided to um, implement it in the inpatient space where our social workers and our palliative care colleagues were involved. And what we would do with this model is to prioritize advanced care planning sessions. You know, so ideally anybody who comes to the hospital and is hospitalized for serious illness will have an advanced care planning discussion, but in reality, we know that doesn't always happen. And so a tool like this, um, if we were able to predict those that are at the highest risk of passing away within the next 12 months, could help us prioritize, okay, these are the patients that are at highest risk. So if they haven't had that discussion yet, they really should. And it can help us um, uh, resource uh, appropriately and make sure that we send our social workers and our palliative colleagues to have that discussion with the highest risk individuals. 
So we help them design that workflow, implement that workflow, and then evaluate that workflow. And it's been very successful. And we recently published the findings in the New England Journal, Catalyst uh, Journal. Well, congratulations. I think that's fantastic. And advanced care directives, such an interesting topic because not really typically something that's talked about in medical school, but we actually just had a session on you know, advanced care planning and kind of talking that through with patients. And it seems like a discussion that's hard for a lot of people. So to have that in place to then be able to kind of plan for the future, especially if, you know, you're expecting mortality within the next 12 months is a very important thing. And I'm sure improves the lives of patients, but also especially the lives of their family members. Thank you. Congratulations. Well, I want to ask you just a few more questions. We kind of we like to ask some fun questions too in these interviews, and we love hearing about the research and the work that you you do and that your team does. Um, but also, kind of just like to pick your brain as a clinician and you know as a leader. What do you think the future of AI and medicine will look like in ten years? And we don't hold you to any of your predictions because we know life. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's always dangerous to try and look into a crystal ball here. Um, uh, but I, I can tell you what I hope will happen, and I and I hope that um, AI will be will be used for for the right use cases for the right reasons, and that it really helps improve the care of patients, but uh, not get in the way of the doctor patient relationship, and definitely not actually create more problems, uh, including health equity concerns. So I really hope that for um, for doctors, AI will be used not only for I think what is happening right now, as I mentioned, in the clinical diagnostic space, but also in the you know quote unquote less sexy applications of AI, you know, in reducing the clerical burdens and most burdens that are the specialty primary care physicians to help them get back to the patients that they, they really want to care for. So things like preauthorization, things like reducing paperwork, documentation, again, low hanging fruit for AI, low risk applications of AI that I hope will be realized in the next 10 years. Of course, better diagnostics is is always um, uh, important, but um, as opposed to, you know, um, subspecialty spaces where diagnostics might be the focus of AI, in primary care, it's also about the quality and the uh, delivery aspects of care itself. And so one project that we're working on, for example, is using AI to predict the risk of avoidable healthcare utilization. So can you take the electronic health records of the patient and predict who are at highest risk of ending up in the ED or in the hospital for an entirely preventable condition? And if you can make those predictions and intervene on those patients early, you can save them a needy visit, you can save them a hospitalization, keep them healthy while lowering costs. That is a good example of what uh, I think a good primary care and population health use case for AI would be. So I'd like to see more of that in the next 10 years. I also hope, uh, sincerely hope, and I'm glad that there's more attention uh, paid to this in recent years, that we address some of the biases and the ethical limitations of healthcare AI. So you might be well aware, and your listeners are probably aware, um, that uh, there are significant biases when it comes to healthcare AI, many of them, again, uh, along racial ethnic lines. For example, 
if we're not capturing the data for certain marginalized populations, be it racial ethnic minority groups, LGBTQI groups, people who just don't access care because they don't have the right insurance, then we are not developing algorithms and models to accurately reflect their experiences. We can't make predictions about them. We can, and our models will be biased against them because their data is not uh, represented in our data sets. So we need to get way more data from vulnerable marginalized populations to make sure that these tools work for them and not against them. And I sincerely hope that in the next 10 years, we'll make significant progress. Absolutely. And in some of our past episodes, we've talked about kind of what we call coding in our implicit biases and trying to avoid integrating the human bias into now these machines that were you know, the artificial intelligence that we're programming, the machine learning that we're programming, hopefully this can be an area where we can make that intervention stop and remove that bias in a way that's respectful of marginalized communities. So I really appreciate you mentioning that because it's something that we've talked about a lot on our show. I'll move yeah. on to our, our next question. Uh, this is kind of a personal one, but I think I think it tells us a lot about kind of your path and and how you've come into the role that you're in today. But what is your biggest failure and what'd you learn from it? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> professional or personal, we do not discriminate. It's whatever you've learned a lot from. We're open to everything. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I wish that one thing that I would do differently in my education, if, if I could do it again, is that I would um, uh, pay a lot more attention to uh, health policy and, and economics. Uh, I don't think it was really until I was out in practice that I realized how much of the problems we face in care delivery is due to misguided or inaccurate uh, health policies and uh, economic drivers that pose uh, you know, perverse incentives for uh, different types of behaviors or, or uh, lack of behaviors in, in healthcare providers and health systems in general. Um, so I, I think I was probably pretty naive <laughs> when I was going through my training that our system is designed a certain way for a certain reason. It's optimized for, uh, for patient care. And it, the truth of it is just that it isn't. And uh, I am now understanding the importance of health policy, economic drivers, um, and uh, the underlying decisions that make the health system what it is today and what, uh, what it could be in the future. So I wish I had more training in that arena. Um, I will say though, uh, you know, for, for, for your uh, listeners who are maybe already out in practice or in residency and, and, and uh, wish they had the same type of training, there, there's always an opportunity to get more education in that area, um, whether it's through, you know, courses or um, uh, uh, offerings through your professional organizations or, or just through uh, uh, getting involved in advocacy work and, and policy um, uh, in the real world. So there are still opportunities there to, to learn. Um, maybe a second one is that I wish I had gotten some formal research training. <laughs> uh, um, I actually don't have formal research training, uh, even though uh, many of my colleagues find that surprising because I've been um, uh, 
uh, lucky and relatively successful in, in publishing. Um, but um, there is certainly a lot to learn when it comes to uh, uh, being a researcher. And um, I had to learn a lot of that on my own because I, I never had formal research mentorship. And that is something that I, uh, that I think would have been really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. But I will say learning on the job is certainly one way to do it, right? <laughs> a little bit harder maybe that way, but certainly possible as you've showed us. So well, absolutely. You're never going to learn everything you need to learn. Um, it's certainly not in primary care and family medicine in your four years of med school, three years of residency. I think it takes a lifetime and uh, plenty of opportunities. And so, you know, for people who um, ask me, you know, how, how do I get into this uh, field of healthcare AI? Um, I, I don't know how to code. I don't have computer science background. I don't have data science background. What I say is, well, neither do I. <laughs> and I founded an, a director research team focused on healthcare AI. And I think the, the key here is that um, there are plenty of amazing data scientists and in industry and academia who are doing that work. But I think where there is a huge gap and where uh, we could really use clinicians with you know, actual clinical experience and understanding of health systems to, to fill in that gap, is in the implementation sciences. And for that, you don't need to be a researcher with a capital R. Um, you don't need to be a data scientist with a master's or a PhD in computer science. You just need to be a really good clinician with some fundamental understanding of how systems work. Some quality improvement you know, training is helpful, uh, but you get a lot of that in family medicine. Um, and, and you can really significantly contribute to the field by filling in those gaps and working with data scientist partners in academia and industry to develop technologies that are going to be human-centered, patient-centered, provider-centered for the right use cases um, and, and not for the wrong uses. Absolutely. You, you have made me kind of curious though, with no formal research training, how did you get interested in this area of artificial intelligence in family practice? Just kind of stumble across it. <laughs> it. It was it was not intentional. Um, I did stumble across it, and it really is. Um, you know, I spent six years as the the medical director of our uh, family, our primary family medicine uh, clinic at, at Stanford. And um, when you're in an operational leadership role like that, you get a lot of insight um, into what's underneath the hood. <laughs> you know all the broken health processes that um, even as a frontline clinician, you might not necessarily be aware of, um, as well as, uh, you know, as well as um, some of the issues related to provider burnout that you're seeing at a, at a higher level that you <laughs> desperately want to, um, but have very little means to fix. <laughs> and so it's through that lens that I really got interested in the possibility of technology fixing some of these issues. And about six years ago, my first AI project was when Google contacted me because they were interested in developing a voice-enabled digital scribe to solve the documentation burden problem. That was my first project, and it was a really great one because it was um, exactly what I wanted to help, just reduce burnout in, in, my, in my faculty. 
but then also my first foray into, into healthcare AI. And really it's from that project that I then uh, discovered this implementation science gap and decided that there was a need for, uh, for another group at Stanford that was just focused on that. So that's, that's, that's how I got there. Very serendipitous. I like that. And I do also want to circle back to what you were saying about, you know, public public policy and kind of you wishing you would have gotten more interested in that as a medical student. You know, I actually, as I mentioned, got off family medicine rotation. And one of the physicians that I worked most closely with was an MD, JD. So I had gone to medical school and law school. And he was saying, I said, you know, why'd you go to law school as well? That just seems like you're a glutton for punishment. That's a lot of school. And, uh, he was like, I wanted to, I really cared about public policy. My wife's a lawyer. He was, he's a member of the Hmong community in the Twin Cities. And he said, I, I wanted to be an advocate for health disparities in my community. And I, I thought that was really awesome. And so he had at least had the foresight to get the, the JD degree. But I think that you're definitely right that there's other educational opportun uh, opportunities out there should people need them. So I just wanted to mention that because I think it's really interesting. But, yeah, great point. Yeah. So another question for you. Um, we've kind of talked about, you know, your path through your career. What advice would you give to someone wanting to pursue a career that's similar to yours? I, I think I touched on a couple of these points. Um, again, if it's if it's um, if it's uh, practicing primary care, but then also contributing to healthcare AI, I would say. First and foremost, uh, uh, really focus on your family medicine residency training and getting a really good solid foundation for being a good generalist clinician. You know, that's that's the most important thing uh, beyond everything else, just to be a really, really good clinician. Um, in terms of the healthcare AI stuff, I don't necessarily think special training is necessary. Helpful training. I think includes things like understanding quality improvement methodologies, lean methodologies, um, design thinking is really, really helpful. Having some research experience, even if it's not formal research training, but having some research methodology experience would be really, really helpful. Um, but then really what you're contributing is not the data science piece. So don't worry about learning how to code or or going through some sort of certificate program for informatics. It's certainly helpful if you do that, but again, not necessary. Um, there's plenty that you can contribute and add value to just by being a very good clinician who understands systems, understands problems, and understands how do you how do you get a potential solution into a certain workflow in a certain I think I think one of the key um, traits I've found of a family medicine physician is you guys are very flexible. I mean, we could be talking about anxiety and depression in room one and then removing an ingrown toenail in room two. And I think that flexibility kind of also seems to apply to this other part of your career, you know, with AI and, and family medicine. So it seems like you've kind of just molded yourself into, you know, without any formal training, this really fascinating role and have been able to help a lot of people, which I think is fantastic. And that seg segues me into my last question, which is, what are you most proud of in your career and in your personal life? <laughs> um, well, I, I think what I'm most proud of in my career is uh, actually exactly what, what you said about, about being flexible. Uh, I've uh, transformed myself 
a, a couple of times in my career so far. Um, I, I my wife likes to say that I'm a very impatient person, and so I get bored very very easily. And every couple of years, I need to do something different. So you know, when I first started my career, I was really into medical education, and that's what I did for the first couple of years of my career was just really focus on teaching medical students and developing programs to to teach medical students. Um, and then the second part, you know, for the next five years, I really focused on um, clinical operations leadership. So I became a medical director of a clinic um, and learned a lot of the, the, the trials and tribulations of what it takes to be a leader um, managing a clinic, a busy primary care clinic with a lot of busy providers. Um, and then now in this, you know, third stage of my career, um, really leaning into research and research into a, an emerging field like it's the flexibility that is so interesting to me and what I love most about my job. And um, something that I'm really, really proud of, I think, is the, is the ability to transform and adapt. And, and hopefully that means, uh, you know, in the next five years, I'll find something else to do again and, and be able to contribute in other ways. So that's one of the things that I'm, I'm most grateful for and most proud of in my professional life. And I thank my family medicine training for that, really. It's the generalist mindset, um, the, the chameleon uh, mindset, um, and being able to sort of change yourself every couple of years. And I really enjoy that. Perfe uh, personally, I, that's a very easy thing. It's gonna be my two kiddos. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, just seeing my, 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 my two kiddos grow up. My, my, my son, he's seven months old. He's, he's really young right now, but um, um, even just uh, seeing him, him like really enjoy eating, really enjoy being more interactive with us, starting to understand, I think, a little bit of what we're saying. You know, last couple of days, I think he started saying data. At least I, I think I'm imagining him saying that. So, you know, those little milestones are, are just um, victories every single day. And my daughter, who's, who's five years old and, and uh, going into kindergarten next year, um, incredibly proud of her doing so well in preschool and learning how to interact with kids, especially during you know, the last couple of years of COVID, you know, social interactions being so limited and so difficult, seeing her develop her, her, um, her language and her social skills and her emotional intelligence, really proud of that. So that, that's easy, it's gonna be my kids. Awesome, and so somewhere in all of this, you found the time to teach your daughter how to play the piano. That's amazing. She loves it, and I, I, I love teaching her, so um, it, it's really fun. She'll, I'll get home, and then she'll, she'll greet me at the door, and then she'll sometimes take me to the piano and see that she's been practicing, and she's really um, uh, catching up really quickly, so I'm very proud of her. That is awesome. I, full disclosure, took seven years of piano lessons. My parents... <laughs> We had a beautiful grand piano. My parents wanted me to be good at the piano so terribly, and I um, can't play anything anymore. <laughs> it was not my talent. <laughs> I'm glad your daughter is finding joy in it because I think um, talent is a, a product of joy and love for something. So it seems like- I think you're right. Yeah, it seems like she has a love for that and you have a love for her, which I think is amazing, so. Oh, that's so sweet of you to say, thank you. Any closing words for our listeners? Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation, Madeline. I, 
and I hope your uh, listeners got something out of it and uh, uh, look forward to hearing future episodes of the podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thanks for joining us. Thank you.